Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Listeners, and welcome to the pilot episode of There Are Four Questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I'm your host, Christopher D. Littlefield, and in the interrogation chamber with me today is Emmy-winning and Grammy-nominated composer Jeff Russo, whose credits include Legion, Santa Clarita Diet, Fargo, which earned him the Emmy, Altered Carbon, Snowfall, Lucifer, The Umbrella Academy for All Mankind, Lucy in the Sky, Lizzie, Counterpart, Power, The Night of, Longshot, Waco, Mile 22, Necessary Roughness, the miniseries Tut, founder of the rock band Tonic, the video game What Remains of Edith Finch, which earned him a BAFTA nomination, and, of course, Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. Jeff, how are you today, and did I miss anything? You know, uh, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't think you did. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a long list. It's been a long time. So, um, yeah, that's uh, it's a pretty exhaustive list. It's pretty impressive, and and I'm so excited and glad that you're here today. Oh, thanks, man. All right, listeners, this podcast is all about interviewing Star Trek fans, podcast hosts, and other very special guests like Jeff here, and asking them, you guessed it, four questions related to their Star Trek experience. All right, Jeff, let's go ahead and get started. And keep in mind that as the interrogator, I reserve the right to ask follow-up questions in order to obtain any additional intelligence that I need. You ready to go? I am. All right. So for question number one, let's talk about music and Trek in the times of COVID. So as a professional musician myself, all of my gigs were either canceled or postponed, but some have adapted to fit the times that we're living in. What was the conversation like when the producers of Disco decided to score season three remotely? And what has that process looked like for you and the rest of the musicians? Uh, well, it's it started with Alex Kurtzman saying to me, "Jeff, I please, I I really don't want a synth score. I don't want to. I don't want a synthetic score." And I said, "Alex, I would. I'd never do that. Can't do that. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't be in keeping with what we're doing. And um, we definitely wanted to keep um, keep the musicians uh, working and and keep the sound of the show uh, in keeping with." with the you know previous seasons and previous incarnations um with that said it became very apparent very early that i wouldn't be able to record the entire orchestra in a room so we had to figure out how we could record all of the musicians without um breaking the quarantine orders or getting anybody sick or any of these things so we embarked me and my team embarked on a on a um on a, a mind planning mission of trying to figure out how we were going to do it. And what we came up with was this jigsaw puzzle idea of, you know, recording all the, all the players individually in their homes and then combining all of those uh, recordings into an orchestra recording. Um, it, th there was a lot of, there was a lot of growing pains and a lot of trying to figure out like what, what was going to be the best way to do it. Um, we, we, we did a couple of test test recordings um to find out how we could really get the tuning all right and the 
the playing all right and everybody's um, you know individual articulations all correct um, and we did finally come to a place to be able to do it albeit with a lot more time you know something that would normally take us four days to record and mix maybe five um you know we record we normally what we would do is i would write the write the episode it would then get orchestrated and then we'd record edit and then mix so now the prep for recording recording editing and mixing takes about 20 times longer than um than it did did individual pieces because we're we went from recording and having like stripes a few stripes strings and brass and winds to having you know 40 or 45 individually recorded tracks um so each one of those tracks has to be edited each one of those tracks have, has to be mixed and then it all has to be mixed together um so it went from taking about four days to taking about 20 um, for each episode. Um, so the good news was we had this long lead up to when we were expected to be done. Like we, they, they, because of the, the, the VFX nature of the show, there's a lot more time between a lock of the show and a final picture because VFX can take a lot, you know, a long time to, to get done. So I can utilize that time to uh to record the score um and and that that helped that helped me a lot it wasn't i didn't have to go to the producers and say i need more time um because the time was basically already there because vfx always needs that amount of time it takes that much time to to do those vfx so um we we ended up coming to coming together and you know most of the of the musicians who play on the scores for picard and for discovery ended up um, being able to put together home studios. Um, you know, we, we put together a, a dossier of, of everything that needed to be done and how it would, needed to be done by the, by the players themselves. And we offered, um, you know, we offered the, the idea of consulting with them on how to record, what, what to utilize, what, what gear to get, what, what um, microphones and, and where to put the microphones in conjunction with their, um, in conjunction with their uh, their instruments and what their rooms looked like, um, like you know, some people just had square rooms that were all wood that sounded much different than the people who had wall-to-wall -wall carpeting in their bedrooms. That were so we had to sort of take all of that into account and figure out like what this per okay so this person has this type of room this type of mic we're going to need to do this this and this this person has this type of room and this kind of mic and you know so it was it's really 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 complicated um but we have figured it out and i i am about halfway done with this with the season so far so cool wow yeah. That is a lot of extra work. I, I've done similar things over the last few months, but nothing to that, nothing in that volume. And uh, it's interesting how much you have to really adapt as a musician to to get similar things done. That's that's really amazing. Yeah, you know, in in the in the in this time, I've I've definitely figured out like how to maximize the um, maximize the. Uh, the sound quality uh, under these conditions, you know, it's, it's, it's really complicated. Yeah. I don't think anybody's going to really know 
That's great. We we got it to the point where it sounds it sounds basically like it sounds basically like like the rest of the like the rest of the scores. That's fantastic. Wow. Um, so can you can you tell me are we going to get any more electric guitar power chords in season three? Uh, um, <laughs> I, uh, you know, <laughs> will you get any? I'm trying to think of what I did in two and three. Um, you know, maybe. Maybe. All right. Maybe. I'll take a maybe. <laughs> I try. You know, to be completely honest with you, it's like I I've been playing guitar for a really long time. Right. And you know, when I, when I decided to sort of dabble or get into writing, you know, orchestrally tinged score music, um, I, I really sort of left the guitar behind. I don't really write scores with guitar. I don't really, so I, I don't really utilize guitar unless I'm specifically asked by a producer, like, hey, what if we use the guitar here? I usually would use other means of doing the same basic thing. Sure. Yeah. I think the uh, the thing that really stuck out to me and a lot of other fans is the is the the what what was used in the big Klingon fight in season two mm-hmm. with that with that big chord there. And that was that was really cool because it felt like a little bit of a departure from from yeah, the orchestration. And, and that was that was a very specific ask. Um, Alex, Alex Kurtzman had said, hey, can we get a little bit of rock? Nice. Can we get a little bit of something here? And you know, I was like, Shit, "You've come to the right place." <laughs> um, so I, I, I did that. It also, it's also in the, um, maybe even more subtle in the, uh, in the cue where Burnham is, you know, as the Red Angel, um, going through space time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some, there's some vocal and and some guitar in there too. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of, you know, I would tinge it out a little bit, you know, put it in every now and again, give, yeah. give people a little bit like, oh, what's that? Is that a guitar? I mean, I don't know how, how close people pay attention to, to the score on that level, but um, perhaps musicians like yourself do, and I know I do. So, yeah. I think that, yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely other musicians, but I think, you know, I've got some other friends that are also podcast hosts. Brandy Jackala listens to season two all the time and it brings her to tears every time she listens to it as does Picard and I think that that especially now in this in this this generation of Star Trek since since the since the sound of Star Trek has been so modernized and has evolved a lot because of you I think people are paying a lot more attention a heck of a lot more attention than they used to for sure thanks all right so question number two, you, as I said, and as, as most people know, you're a founding member of Tonic, which was formed in 93, earned you two Grammy nominations. I, I want to know, tell, tell me about the transition period from writing, performing, and touring in a rock band to then, as you said, composing and scoring for film and TV. How did that happen for you? And what was that like as you began shifting gears? Um, you know, it's interesting. I It wasn't a conscious choice you know it wasn't like uh i want to do something different i want to make a change in my career and try something else and write different kinds of music that that really wasn't what happened what um really what happened was we took a break from the band we needed a we had been touring for so long and, and we had been making records and um emerson wanted to he's a singer in the band emerson wanted to go make a solo record 
and we just had had enough of each other for a while. You know, it wasn't like a, we're breaking up and we hated one another. It was nothing like that. It was just like, we just needed a break. Um, and in that break, I was trying to figure out like, what am I doing? Like, what would I do? Is the band the only thing I have? Is it the only thing I do? Is it, and you know, I thought about making a solo record. I wrote some songs and started doing that. I thought about playing on other people's records. I thought about, um, I thought about producing records, which I did some. I started another band called the Low Stars with three other friends of mine. Um, and then it wasn't until I was invited to my friend Wendy Melvoin's studio um, when they were working on a little show called Heroes. Heard of it? That, um, that, that I really felt an interest in doing this. Now, I had felt an interest in doing this kind of music and in, in writing for screen because um, in 2000, I, I was, was in a movie called um, Hollywood Palms and I was an actor. They, they hired me to play the rock guitar player kid guy. And, you know, um, so I, I did that and then was invited to the then composer's home studio to play guitar on the score. And when I did that, I was like, oh wow, this is pretty cool. Like playing, you know, playing guitar and picture, it's pretty cool. And then actually that composer became one of my best friends, Ben Decker. Um, but it, it really wasn't until I went to Wendy and Lisa's studio in 2006 that I really was like, oh, I could do this. And then she, um, she asked me to hang out and like basically work for them. You know, like I assisted in the studio. I cleaned up, I set up sessions and, you know, watched what they did. Eventually they asked me if I wanted to be, try my hand at writing some cues for them. And uh, I, I did, and it worked out really well. And I did that for like a year. Um, and that, that was really it. Then all of a sudden I was like, oh, this is kind of a cool thing. Like, I like this because I can, I can do this and I can not, have to go on tour and not have to miss my family and not have to, you know, it was, it was a cool thing. Um, and, uh, it stuck with me and it, it wasn't until 2009 that I started to like really work. Um, but that was the transition. And it was, it, again, it was like, it wasn't on purpose. It, I wouldn't say it was an accident, but it was sort of a coincidence. I, I, you know, my, my wife, um, happened to know Wendy. I was a huge fan of Wendy and Lisa's. Obviously they were, you know, they played in Prince's band. And um, so I was a huge fan of theirs when I was a kid. So that was really um, interesting to me. Um, so it was just, it was great. That's, that's incredible. I, it's, I like how, you know, sometimes it's just really about being at the right place at the right time and like the synchronicity of the people and the moment and, it just kind of leads you to something new that you've never done before. I was subbing on a gig for the gay men's chorus in New York city playing piano mm. and the, for, for they were recording something for a documentary and the producer there was like, Hey, we really like the way you play. Will you score the documentary? Will you supervise it? And I was like, uh, okay, I've never done it before. Mm. And then it was right. just like the coolest thing because I was doing something I'd never done. And it was just like this amazing kismet moment, you know? Yeah, I mean, I I find that that's the way, that's the way things happen a lot of times. Like you you know, you, things happen where you least expect them. Right. You know. Yeah. And you don't necessarily know what life has in store for you until it's presented to you. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, it could be anything. Yeah. And everybody's path is a little bit different, too. Like people will ask, how did you do this? How did you get started? And it's like, yeah, I don't know. It just happened. Everybody's right. path is different, you know? That's true. And, and you know, that's right. And people and people's path to the same location. So different, right? Like, right, right. So, yeah. All right. So uh, uh, this is kind of a deeper question. So uh, as an as an artist, there's this concept of creating and discovering that intersection of what you're passionate about and what you love with your skill set and your gifts and your talents. And there's a quality in that kind of work that is transcendent and it manifests itself in your art. So as, as a musician myself and also a Star Trek fan, it would seem like working musically on a Star Trek series would be something like that. And it's really obvious to me that for you composing and scoring for shows like Legion and Trek, that that is, it also, it, it seems to me that that's one of those places for you because there's an integration of so many of the things that make you, you, what did it take for you to personally get to that place of integration? And what does it feel like being there? And if you don't feel like it's that place, you can totally disagree with everything I said too. I mean, I think what you're saying is pretty interesting. I don't think that it, it, it didn't certainly didn't materialize in that in that way for me you know i've been a star trek fan since i was a teenager right um so i've always i've always been into that style of music um i've always been and i've always been into the the, the storytelling of star trek i i came to be a star trek fan at next generation um you know i i never really watched the, um, up to that point, I had never really watched the original series. I had grown up watching the movies. And my first movie that I saw of Star Trek was my favorite one, um, which is Rathacon. And that was the very first Star Trek. That was my entryway into Star Trek. And then after that, I went and um, uh, I saw the next one, which was The Search for Spock. And I, you know, I kept, I kept watching forward and then eventually went back and watched the original motion picture and then started watching some of the earlier, um, earlier episodes after I had already gotten into the next generation. Um, next generation started in 87, 88, 87 or 88. Um, and so, so really my captain is Jean-Luc Picard, right? Like that's the captain that I really connected with. I really got into so for me, it was more of an emotional connection to the narrative rather than an, some sort of like musical um, musical connection. Because, I mean, I, I was listening to Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and, you know, I, I wasn't listening to, um, to score music then. I wasn't listening to, I, as a matter of fact, I didn't really pay attention to what the score did in The Next Generation when I was that, when I was that young. Um, obviously there was the, the theme, which, I always thought I was special that I knew that the theme came from the end of, of the original motion picture. Like I thought nobody knew that. But me. <laughs> and of course that was dumb to think, but that was, and that was the thing that, that always really sort of stuck with me. So in getting to, in getting to work on discovery, it was, you know, really, really an amazing experience for me and an amazing thought to be able to start working in this world of this kind of narrative. But when, when I talked to Alex about doing um, Picard, it was on a whole nother level of, of connection for me. Um, and, you know, 
musically, I tend to write what I write. You know, I tend to write the kind of music that I tend to write. You know, I'm not the kind of composer who is like, um, you know, it's going to be like this type of music for this project and this type of music for this project. I tend to just look at a look at a um, I look at a uh, at a project and try to be creative for that project. I don't try to say to myself, oh, well, this needs this kind of music hmm. and this needs that kind of music. I don't really write that way. Um, I really write from the heart. And that that's the thing that has always driven me for Star Trek. Um, you know, my original pitch to, um, to, uh, to, to Alex and the original showrunners of, of Star Trek Discovery was to be more connected emotionally to the characters and to try to tie these characters together from an emotional standpoint. Yes, there's going to be these big action set pieces, and those are what they're going to be. We all know what those are. But all of that other stuff, all of the other internal stuff really needs to connect thematically um, to, uh, for all these characters. And I thought that that was a good way to try to tell the story from a more emotional, uh, emotionally grounding standpoint. And, and Alex agreed with me and thought it was a good idea for, for Discovery. And I applied that same idea um, even more so to, um, to, uh, to Picard. And for me, it was maybe even because I'm way more emotionally connected to the character of, of Jean-Luc Picard than I am any other character because it's just, that's, that's what I grew up on. Um, so, you know, I, again, I, I don't know that there's any one thing that I have to um, sort of meld into a Star Trek world, artistically speaking. Um, I lent my ideals, right? I lend my, my ideas and musical ideals to this particular narrative. And for me, it worked. And I, I really like what that does. Um, so I, I don't know that there is, uh, I don't know that there was any sort of changing that I need to do in order to, to, you know, become more symbiotic with, with the, the idea of Star Trek music. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was a natural progression for me as a writer to bring myself closer to that. And I think in doing that, it brang it it brang it brought the the idea of uh of star trek music closer to me right i'm not even sure that i answered you i'm not even sure that i answered your question i think um, i think that your like your interpretation of what it means i think that there's this place of where you kind of just live in what you live love and what you do and who you are and if you're doing that then the right things are going to come yeah i think that that that's very true i think that if you're true for me if i'm able to be true to myself musically then it feels like the right things will happen and music is completely subjective so that that doesn't always work it just so happens that i have this relationship with alex and with michelle at this point who is um and now we're talking about discovery um we're we're all sort of on the same page musically you know I, I deliver a score and there aren't many changes. Occasionally there's like, you know, can you hit this a little harder? Can you do this a little more here? We'd really like this to be a little more emotional here or really can you make it sound warmer here? There are those kinds of notes that come from, from Alex and from Michelle. Um, but generally speaking, it's like we're all sort of on the same page, which it really feels like that's the way it always should be. You know, it should be, but it's, 
it's not always like that, you know, as you know, it's, it's very rare. Yeah. I mean, it's not, I've been on, I, I, you know, and I've been on projects where, um, you know, I've written a score and they're just like, yeah, maybe not this, maybe something else, you know, and then you have to think of a whole nother thing. And, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. One of the things I've always thought is when, when I deliver a score and someone doesn't like it, that's okay. Because I, I'm a full, you know, I, I fully understand that music is completely subjective and certainly how music that I write relates to something that is someone else's art is it's completely understandable. But sometimes I get a note like, well, you know, this isn't working. What were you thinking? And I was like, well, you don't think that I'm delivering you a score that I don't think works, do you? Like, I, of course, what I'm delivering to you, I actually think works. Uh-huh. I understand that you may not, and that's okay. And let's discuss so I can change it to be what it is you're looking for. But I think it's kind of funny getting into a conversation about, um, you know, what were you thinking? Why would you do something like this? Well, you know, I, I this felt like it worked to me. So mm-hmm. I usually go with my first instinct. Right. And there's a place where when you are working collaboratively, you you know, the ego has to kind of get out of the way a little bit in order to to serve each other. You know, it's interesting. I find that because I was in a rock band and because I had my ego, um, I had my ego sufficiently stroked being in a successful rock band. Like you're in a successful rock band and you write songs that are hits and you're on stage and people are singing those songs while you're playing. Like that's a kind of, you know, um, that's a kind of service to one's ego that you really can't experience other than in that particular situation. And I think that because of that, my ego in this situation is basically, I have none. Like, yeah, it's a bummer that you don't like it, but okay. Like, I'll just do it again. I can change it. It's not like I can, I leave my ego at the door because I don't really need it anymore. I had a lot of that dealt with when I was young in my twenties. Um, and, and now, you know, just like, okay, that's good. We'll, we'll fix it. Whatever you, whatever is going to make it right for you, you know? Yeah. Nice. So uh, for question number four, piggybacking off of that last question, sort of, mm. what would your message be to Trek fans, young and old alike, maybe they're musicians or they're artists who are still finding their voice and are building toward that place of knowing their gifts and talents and integrating them with the things that they love? A lot of Trek fans, as you know, find so much inspiration in Trek. How can artists who want to do those kind of things or Trek fans maintain their sense of self and also integrate it with, with doing stuff that they love to do? You know, it's an interesting question and it poses a conundrum, right? (laughs) Because the the conundrum is being an artist and wanting to create, and then also being in a business and wanting that art to create income, you know, and have it be utilized so you can make a living at doing something as doing art. Um, You know, they're two very, very different things. I think that you can't really do one until you found your other, until you found yourself as the other, right? Because if you, if you, if you try too hard or you get too successful, too young, you lose yourself, right? You, you don't really have a good enough base for, um, 
for, well, first of all, for rejection, which this business is filled with, like yeah. this business is basically 90% rejection, right. um, if not more. Some people it's a hundred percent rejection, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it's, it's a hundred percent rejection until it's not, you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it, it's all rejection until, until the first time that you're, you're not rejected. So it's interesting. I would say one of the more important things I have found is that you really do need to find your own voice and, and be okay with that voice and, and let that voice be what it is. And don't try to sound like somebody else. You know, it's like, don't try to do something that, you know, it's one thing to push the envelope and to stretch and to try to do something that you haven't normally done. But if you're trying to sound like something that is the flavor of the month or the thing that people are really digging, I'm like, you know, that feels disingenuous to me. And I think that's where people start to lose themselves. Yeah. You know, one of, one of the things that, we always talk about in Trek, just like talking about the ethos of Roddenberry's vision for Trek is this universal um, acceptance of people and feelings and races and human versus Klingon versus, you know, just it's all, basically it's melting pot, right? And everybody is who they are. And um, I think that for me, I like to think that that extends to artists and that extends to, you know, all manner of, of any kind of expression. And, you know, that as referenced in music is really important to think about, you know, think about like being who you are and allowing that to, to drive what you do, allowing that to at least lead what you do. When I first started when I first started doing this, I was trying very hard to be just like Wendy and Lisa. And, you know, that worked for a minute because I was actually writing music for them. You know, it worked for when I was doing that. When, when I found that I was, then when I started working on my own, I found that that wasn't working for me. Like that, that's not who I was. I didn't write that kind of music. I'm not that kind of musician. And it took a while for me to really find the kind of music that I really like, I really enjoy writing and, and I tend to write. And it wasn't until I, I worked on, on, on Fargo in 2014 that I really sort of found the way I like to make music and interact with, um, with a narrative. And that was, that was a jumping off point for me. And I think that led directly to, to me, you know, writing music for um, narrative in a very deeply emotional way. Because that was, it's, even though you think of Fargo as this sort of like tongue in cheek kind of funny thing, it's a pretty serious narrative and it's emotionally driven and we only use music to really drive that home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that taught me a lot of lessons in, in, um, in how to make music for a screen. And it, it's very interesting to me in how I apply that, that sort of ethic to how I write stuff for Trek. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's, uh, I come full circle back to like, you know, the most important thing, and it might sound sort of cliche, but the most important thing is just being true to yourself in, in what you are as a musician and what you are as a writer. And that usually brings you full circle. You know, that usually brings you the things that at least will make you happy. It might not bring you, it might not bring you success, but it will certainly bring you personal success and 
to me, like one without the other is not as, um, it's not as meaningful. Yeah. And I know that it's easy for, for someone like me to say that because I'm in a situation where I am working and there are a lot of people trying to work, you know, trying to get, trying to get a job as a, as a composer or as, you know, just going out playing guitar. But I, I, I will say it's, um, it, it really did. There was a time when I wasn't working and trying to find what I was doing at that point was difficult, but I know that doing so helped me. That is what I know. Yeah. I, I, I mean, that's amazing. That's, I, I couldn't agree more. There's the, the, the biggest asset is you, it's yourself. It's what makes you, you, you know, that's what makes you special. That's what makes you different. And finding that is such, it's so key. Yeah. All right, Jeff, I hate to break it to you, but I know you may think that there are four questions here, but there are actually five questions. There are four questions. <laughs> there are five. <laughs> <laughs> are you ready to proceed? Sure. All right. Question five. Your mission is to compose a collaborative score for an upcoming experimental and out-of-the-box Star Trek series or film. You get to choose two people to work with and the three of you will write and produce the score together. One has to be a deceased composer or artist from any time in history, and the second one has to be a living composer or artist with whom you've never worked. Who are those composers or artists and why? Wow. Uh, okay, so one, Wendy Carlos. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I, I mean, her, her work... Um, her, her work with synthesizers is spectacular and those sounds blow my mind every time I listen to any, anything that she's done. So she's living, I think. Yes, she's alive. Okay, so that's the living one. <laughs> I, 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 think she's, I think she's alive. Yeah, I think Should she's Should we Google alive. it? <laughs> uh, no, no, she's, she's alive. I better Google it. Um, I will Google it. Uh, Wendy Carlos. Still alive, it looks like. Um, Age 80. Eight, yes. Yeah, 80 years old. Still alive. That's great. Okay. All right. And let's see. Dead. You know, if we're do, if this is Star Trek and I get to, I get to pick. Yeah, it's your, whatever you want it to be. Okay. So if it's, if it's Star Trek and it is, and I'm going to definitely collaborate. This is like. We're going to sit and we're going to write this together. Yeah. Um, I know this is going to be very controversial among, oh, good. among uh, <laughs> Star Trek composers or about, among Star Trek score fans, mm -hmm. but I'm going to say James Horner. And I'm going to say James Horner because James Horner wrote my favorite Star Trek score, which is The Wrath of Khan. Now, I could say Jerry Goldsmith, or right. I could say Sandy Courage, or I could say Fred Steiner, or I could say, there's a million of them I could say. Oh, yeah. But- but his his work on that, and I and I, you know, it's funny. It's like I think he did a take on on um, something of of Goldsmith's from the movie, and I it it's hard to know. Like, there's a chord progression that is like lifted. It sounded like it was kind of lifted, but I, I don't know. Um, but that score is pretty intense. So if I if I had the opportunity to work with those two people to make the next Star Trek score that I would be also writing, those would be the two people that I would do it with. That sounds epic. Yeah. That, that's incredible. As a matter of fact, my next Star Trek score will probably try to include 
vibes from those composers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, well, Jeff, I cannot thank you enough for joining me today. It's been so great talking with you. I, I appreciate you having me. And uh, please tell our listeners where they can find you online. And if there's anything else we should look for, Discovery Season 3, anything? <laughs> well, I mean, Discovery Season 3 is in progress. Honestly, to tell you to tell you the truth, um, I can't tell you anything. Um, and not because I'm not allowed to, but because I really just don't know. Because they really don't tell me anything. Like, I literally only know something when they send me an episode and they're like, can you write this one? And I'm like, sure. So I write it and then record it and send it back. That's really all I know. I don't know anything else. But we are definitely in the middle of, of, of Discovery Season 3. Um, I don't know anything about anything else. There's a lot, there's a lot happening in the Star Trek universe. That's, that I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, I definitely encourage the listeners to check out your website. There's so much great things on there, some amazing interviews. Yeah, my, my website's jeffrusso.com. My Twitter is at jeffersonrusso or my instagram is also at jefferson russo so and there's facebook too and it's everywhere it's just you know just google it and you find it all all right well thanks again jeff i really appreciate you being here i appreciate it thank you very much you can join the conversation on twitter and facebook by following us at four questions trek that's the number four and join our listeners group on facebook by typing the nexus into the search field you can find me on instagram and twitter at cd littlefield this interview took place just days before the announcement was made that Discovery Season 3 would be premiering on October 15th. We here at Holosuite Media are so excited about all the incredible new content we're cooking up for you. Thank you for listening to There Are Four Questions. I see no point in holding you further. You may go. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program for Starbase One, a Star Trek online podcast. I don't really think that's a good idea. I order you to do it right now. Warning, the structural integrity field has collapsed. This is Admiral Quinn. You will be assigned to Starbase One... Welcome to Starbase One. I'm Colin. I'm Admiral Aaron. I'm Dave. I'm Steve. And I'm Tom. Starbase One is a dedicated Star Trek Online podcast. If you're a first-time listener, hello. If you're a dedicated decade listener and you've been wondering where the hell we are, we're back. Loading Holosuite Preview Program for Open Channel, a Star Trek community podcast. True, but, but how do you decide what's empty fan service and what's you know substantial fan service what's the difference uh, watch star wars the rise of skywalker <laughs> and you'll see some examples of empty fan service uh, okay okay that's fair <laughs> yeah i get that but you know they can do i've said this before but they can do whatever they want to because it's animated they can have any voice actor from any other star trek series and figure out a way to write them in loading hollow suite preview program for 
The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast. During the whole lockdown around the world, Enterprise is having a surge in popularity. I don't know if you've seen it. That's what I've been hearing. It's crazy, like the Facebook groups, Twitter, everyone is talking about Enterprise, and I didn't realize so many Trek fans had never even watched it. It's nuts. People call themselves lifelong Trekkies who've never watched it and are loving it now. I said to someone a week or two ago, I said, look, I'm so glad that you're finally getting around to watching it and enjoying it. But where were you guys <laughs> 15 years ago yeah. when we needed did you when the show was on the edge then ultimately got cancelled computer deactivate holosuite